You're listening to a sermon series by Grace City Church, a church plant in Green Square in Sydney. For more information about us, visit gracecity.com.au. Thank you, Danny. Hello, everyone. Uh, One day we'll all say hello. It'll be a great day. Well, my name is Matt. It is good to be here. I get the privilege of uh, preaching to us from God's Word, but let me pray first and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you have installed him as king. And so we pray today that as we open your word and hear of all of your promises to bring about your great king, that you would remove the crown from our own head and that we would rightfully put it on King Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the uh, lead up to Christmas, we are doing this Advent series. Uh, Advent means the arrival. And what we're doing is we're celebrating uh, the arrival or the coming of Jesus and all the the fulfillment of the promises that he is, the prophet, priest uh, and king. Now, today's the the third and final week in this series. And we're looking at Jesus as God's long awaited king that he promised. Uh, But here's the thing. I don't think we like the idea of Jesus being our king. I don't think we like that. Now, we we love the idea of Jesus being our prophet, that he comes and he speaks to us on behalf of God and reveals God to us. We like that. We're the Bible people. We like the idea of Jesus being our great high priest uh, who offers himself as the once for all time sacrifice for our sin and now is seated at God's right hand, interceding on our behalf. We love that. But I'm just not sure that we like the idea of Jesus being our king. Now, why is that? Well, first of all, kings are tyrants, aren't they? If you look back through history, nearly every king, without exception, has been a tyrant. They rule with oppression and slavery. Kings rule for their own good at the expense of the people that they're meant to be serving. They inevitably end up abusing their power and oppressing people. That's History attests to that. It's why pretty much every uh, place on earth that used to be ruled by a monarchy is now ruled by some sort of democracy. Kings are tyrants. But there's a second reason that I think we don't like the idea of a king. And that's because we, we hate the idea that there is someone over us, someone above us, someone who would rule over us. Someone that we would belong to and be accountable to and have to obey. Because we we don't want to be subject to anyone. That's why we fool ourselves into thinking, well, under democracy, at least we make the rules for ourselves. Really, I think it's the, the great idol of our culture. The great idol of Western culture at the moment is freedom. We want to be free and we think that any restrictions is oppression. And so we hate the idea that there would be a king that would rule over us, that we would have to obey. We don't want a king. We want to be free. You see that in Psalm 2 that Danny read out before. Uh, Psalm 2 is a psalm about God's coming king. Uh, In verse 2 here, he's called the anointed. Uh, And in this first stanza of this psalm, uh, you see it. It says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. 
Now, what's happening here is that the nations, the peoples, the kings are all rising up together, banding together against God and against God's king, seeking to break off the chains and throw off the, the shackles of restriction that come when there is a God over them. It's like a child who wants to be free of the parents' control and so leaves home so they could live without restrictions. Now, what it's saying is that, that we, human beings, try to free ourselves from the rule of God in our lives. That we rise up against God and against his king. We don't want a king. We want to be free. But it's, I think it's more than just that we don't want a king. I think it really behind that is the idea that really we want to be king. Here's how... Um, Atheist Jeremy Rifkins puts it in one of his books. He said, We no longer feel ourselves to be a guest in someone else's home and therefore obliged to make our behaviour conform to a set of pre-existing cosmic rules. It is our creation now. We make the rules. We establish the parameters of reality. We create the world and because we do, we no longer feel beholden to outside forces. We no longer have to justify our behavior, for we are now the architects of the universe. We are responsible to nothing outside ourselves, for we are the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. That's the stance of every human heart towards God. Really, that's the reality of what sin is. Sin isn't just breaking rules. Sin is rejecting God as king and placing that crown on ourselves, thinking that we are our own little kings. We don't want Jesus as a king. We want to be king. But it might be that you go, well, look, I don't want to be king. That may be true. But that doesn't mean that you won't have a king. Even if you disregard what I said before, we will all still end up having a king over us. We will all enthrone either ourselves or something or someone else over our lives. We will all worship someone or something. We will all need a saviour. We will all need to give our lives to someone or something and end up serving them. We'll all end up having a king, whether that's ourselves or someone else. The only question is, who's going to be your king? Is it going to be God's true king or a false king? Because as you get to the second stanza in Psalm 2, this is what God says. It says, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. God says, I've installed my king, the true king. And so what I want to do today, as we get to this third week of prophet, priest, and king, is I want to take us back to the Old Testament, and I want to sort of trace it through and show us all the promises that God had made of this king that was going to come, this king that he has installed. That's, once we've done that, I then want to go back and show you how all of those promises are fulfilled in King Jesus, and then finally, to finish, I want to then spend some time thinking through, well, if there is a king and he's on the throne, what does it actually mean to have Jesus as your king? So that's where we're going. Make sense? Okay. 
Let's jump in. Let's have a look at it. Now, first, what I want to do, go back and I want to trace the theme of kingship through the Old Testament and see the promises of God that he gave to his people that one day he would give us the perfect king. Now, I've spent all week trying to figure out how best to do this. Uh, I'm a visual learner, so I like lots of pictures and diagrams and I like Canva. So I've spent a bit of time on Canva this week. I think I'm their best uh, evangelist. Nando's, Canva and Jesus, my three favorite things to talk about. Um, Now, this is going to take a few minutes. It's going to take a few minutes to go through this, to trace it through, but I think it's going to be worth it. After all, it took God about 1,500 years to reveal his promises, so I think we can all handle a few minutes. Can you do that with me? You can handle a few minutes. Ready? Let's jump in. Okay. So the Bible opens with God as king over his creation. Uh, He rules it by his word. Uh, And as he makes everything and then he sets up as the pinnacle of his creation, humanity, who he makes in his image. uh, And he sets them up as his vice regents to rule over his creation on his behalf. Now, things start pretty well, but it doesn't take long before Satan enters in and tempts them uh, to be like God. And they end up rejecting God sinning and then sin and death enter into the world but even here right at the start just after they have sinned and rebelled against their king God gives them a promise the promise right even here at the beginning and here's the promise says that one of their offspring will crush Satan's head even though Satan will bruise his heel so you get this very small picture of what's going to come Then as the Bible goes on, we meet a guy named Abraham. And God makes a promise to him. And he says that, uh, you see this in Genesis chapter 12, and the promise is that I'm going to make you, Abraham, into a great nation, if you like, a, a great kingdom. And he says that through you, one of your descendants is going to come and going to be a blessing to the whole world. Well, Abraham's descendants moved to Egypt And they end up being enslaved under Pharaoh. And Pharaoh sets himself up against God. That doesn't go very well for Pharaoh. Has anyone seen the movie The Prince of Egypt? It's a pretty good description of it. You should go and watch it if you haven't seen it. Save you reading a whole bunch of chapters in the Bible. Although you should read the Bible. That's much better. But you get the picture from it. Well, God defeats Pharaoh and rescues his people out of slavery in Egypt and brings them into this promised land, this nation that he promised he would do. And so God is their king. They're in the land that he promised to them. And for about five minutes, things seem to go okay. But then as the people look around at the other nations, they see that every other nation has a king that rules over them. And so they ask for a king as well. You see this uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, where the people come to the prophet Samuel and they say this. They say, appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. And so he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. So they reject God as their king and they want a king like all the other nations around them. And so God gives them what they want. And just for the record, when God gives you what you want, it's not always a good thing. 
Be careful what you pray for. God might give you what you want and that might not be what is good for you. But anyway, the people choose a guy named King Saul. Uh, Remember back to our series earlier this year, uh, towards the start of the year, we did a series in 1 Samuel. We went through all of this. Uh, But basically they chose Saul because he was taller than everyone else and he was really good looking, which makes you think you should never trust anyone who's tall and good looking, should you? Uh, But things don't go well for King Saul. Uh, He doesn't trust God. And in the end, God removes him as king uh, and chooses for himself a king after his own heart. Enter King David. Now, King David is a good king. Uh, He rules under God, the people, and he's a good king. Well, at least at the start. Uh, We're going to look at 2 Samuel next year. And so come back for that series. I won't give it all away now. Uh, but we'll, we'll move into David's kingdom and see all of that in 2 Samuel. So you could read ahead for that. But God makes a promise to, to King David. And he says to him uh, that one of your offspring is going to rule as king forever. And you see that in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. So have a look. It says, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house of my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And so this offspring of David is going to be a king who will be on the throne forever, the forever king. But did you notice also This king is going to be the son of God. Well, next comes King Solomon, David's son. And the big question at the time is, is this going to be God's promised king? Is he the one who's going to rule forever? He's going to be the son of God. Well, things start really well. Under his leadership, Israel enjoy a great time of peace and prosperity. He's a wise king and he builds God's temple. But over time, Solomon starts to do the things that God had said for a king not to do. He starts acquiring much wealth for himself and trusting in that rather than in God. He starts acquiring many wives for himself and is led away and starts worshipping their gods rather than the true God. And he he amasses a huge um, amount of horses for himself, which is talking about military He stopped relying on God and trusting that God would provide for them and thinking that his military could protect them. And so he also wasn't this promised king. Well, then Solomon's sons come to power and they're even worse than Solomon and the kingdom gets fractured and falls apart and God's people end up in exile out of the promised land and are ruled by foreign kings. Basically, this is the way it keeps going, all the way till you get to the start of the New Testament. God's people have no king, and they're under the rule of a foreign king named Herod. They're still waiting, longing for this advent, this coming of the king that God had promised. After failed king, after failed king, after failed king. The one who would crush Satan's head. The one who would reverse the curse of sin. The one who would be the blessing to the world. The son of David. The one who would be the son of God. The one who would bring peace and fight God's battles and bring justice and righteousness. 
let me read out one of the passages that brings all of these themes, all of these promises together. It's a passage we often read out at Christmas. You'll probably be very familiar with it. But maybe it has a bit more meaning now. It's a prophecy about this coming king. It says, For us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom and establish establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. That's the king that they're longing for, the one who will bring this peace. But just before we move on, why did I take all that time to walk us through these promises, walk us through this? Well, Firstly, it's because I wanted to show you that the Old Testament isn't just a bunch of stories all sort of jammed together. It's one story from beginning to end of God uh, promising and then establishing his king, bringing his king. But it can also give us so much confidence in Jesus because he's not just some random guy that appears in the first century and does some nice teachings. He's the one who from the beginning was promised by God. These promises built and built and built until you have the coming of Jesus. We can have great confidence that Jesus is God's promised king. But I also wanted to show it to you because hopefully as you see that, you can see the longing that God's people had that was building over this such a long period of time that God would send this king who would rescue them. Over 1,500 years, all of these promises, they got to see little glimpses of this at different points. But we get to see the fulfillment of all of these promises coming together. And it's into this context, with all of these promises of God, that Jesus is born. And so what I want to do now is move from the Old Testament to the New to show you how Jesus is that long-awaited king who's going to come. And so the New Testament begins with, to be fair, not the most exciting start. If you've opened up to Matthew chapter 1, it's a very long genealogy. If you're anything like me, you probably start reading it and then skip it and move on to the next bit. I think Matthew, when he was writing it, knew we'd probably do that. So he decided to summarize it in the first verse, which is always a good thing to do. Here's what he says in verse 1. He says, the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, that's the anointed one, the coming king, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then what he does in the rest of the genealogy is he traces from Abraham through to King David and then from King David through to Joseph, who was Jesus's dad. And his point is, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those promises, the the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that one of his offspring would bring blessing to the world and to David that that his son, that the son of David, uh, would be the one who sits on the throne forever and would also be the son of God. Well, and the next thing you see is the Magi. Remember the wise men? We sing about them at Christmas who bring gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Well, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? 
We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, after Jesus' birth, we, we don't hear a lot from him until later on when he is baptized. And it's at his baptism that you get this public anointing of Jesus as king, as God declares him to be the son of God and anoints him not with oil, which is what kings were anointed with, but with the Holy Spirit. And so all four Gospels speak of this, but let me show you Mark uh, 1 and show you the account there. It says, At this time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven came, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And so not only is the Son of Abraham and the son of David is also the son of God, declared by God at his anointing. And then you get Jesus' first sermon. Now, it was a lot shorter than this one. He only had to preach for two sentences, but I guess if you're God, you can probably do that. Uh, take a bit longer. Uh, and he says this, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The time where God will establish his kingdom. It's here. All these promises are coming to their fulfillment right here and now. And if the kingdom is about to be here, well, then so is the king. And then you start to see this all starting to come together as Jesus begins to teach about the kingdom of God and shows the inbreaking of the spirit, uh, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God as he brings about the reversal of the fall. He heals the sick, forgives sin, even raises the dead. And then as he enters into Jerusalem, the city of David, as he rides in on a donkey, people put down their coats on the ground and palm branches on the ground. We call it Palm Sunday at Easter time. And they hail him to be the king. But just at the moment where you think Jesus is going to be crowned as king, he's betrayed and he's abandoned. And he's arrested and he's condemned to death and he's crucified by, on a Roman cross. And it just looks like another in a long list of failed kings. Even the disciples think it's all over. But this is actually the moment where Jesus is crowned as king. Uh, where he establishes the kingdom of God. What looked like humiliation and defeat, God uses as the crowning and the exaltation of his king. Through a crown of thorns and a Roman cross is the moment that God exalts his king, crushes his enemies of Satan, sin and death, and brings justice and peace between us and God. It's at the cross that he does that. That's his moment of exaltation. The cross is the great enthronement of Jesus as king, the one for so long that God had promised. Jesus is God's promised king. And so the question is, what are we to do with all this? What are we to do with these promises and Jesus being the fulfillment of that? Well, we talk about Christ as the gospel message. 
Now, the gospel message, the gospel just means, it's two words joined together. It means good news. Uh, and it was a message, it's not a Christian word. It's a word that was used at the time. And it was a, a message or an announcement used by a king. And what would happen if there was a king and a kingdom and he went to war against another king and, and that kingdom, uh, if that king overthrew the other king in that kingdom, he would then send out messengers, heralds, into his new kingdom with the gospel. And what was the gospel? What was the message? It was, you have a new king. Your old king has been defeated. You have a new king now, so bow down and worship me. That was the gospel message that they would herald. Now the question is, is that a good news message or a not so good news message? Well, I guess it would depend on what type of king your new king was, right? If they were a good king, a just king, maybe that was good news. If they were a tyrant, that would be terrible news for you, probably be enslaved. But the Christian gospel message is, you have a new king. Your old king is dead. And Jesus has installed his perfect king, the king of peace and righteousness and justice, the long-awaited king that he had promised for so long. And he's come to bring salvation from our enemies, Satan's sin and death, to establish God's kingdom on earth and to rule with justice and righteousness. That's good news. And so Psalm 2 finishes in the final stanza with the response that we should have to the good news that God has installed his king. He says, therefore, you kings, be wise, us. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the sun or he will be angry and all your ways will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so really we're only left with two options. Either we can kiss King Jesus, we can celebrate his rule over our life and find refuge and blessing in him, or we can oppose God's king and all of our ways will lead to destruction. Now, with the time we have left, what I want to do is now consider, well, what would it look like for us to treat Jesus as king. And Colin, you'll be really happy. You know, you like sermons that make you feel, where is Colin gone? Even in the room anymore, is he gone? <laughs> Awkward. You like sermons that make him feel guilty? Maybe this one will. I don't, I don't, don't, don't feel guilty from this. Use it to empower you. But what does it look like to treat Jesus as king? That would have worked way better if he was in the room. <laughs> uh, okay. What does it look like to, to treat Jesus as king? First of all, obey. Um, treating Jesus as, as your king will mean that you will obey him. So let me ask you a question. Do you really obey Jesus? Do you listen to what he says and do it? Or do you just see him as an advisor in your life? Someone with some good things to say. Because they're two totally different things, aren't they? to obey him as king or to just see him as an advisor. Now, none of us are going to obey him perfectly in our lives. That's why we needed Jesus to be our great high priest who offers a sacrifice of himself in our place for our sin. But our posture before Jesus should be one of obedience to what he commands rather than just to take his advice and then decide what we're going to do. 
and how we're going to live. Because you can't treat Jesus like that. He is not an advisor. He is God's king. We can't just obey him when it suits us, if we can get something from it. Who's king if you do that? Well, it's yourself, isn't it? It's not Jesus. Can I humbly submit, and this is to myself as, as well as you as well, if you're not seeing God's blessing in your life, is it because you aren't treating Jesus as king? If you're not seeing God's blessing in your life, is it because you're not seeing him as your king? You're not treating him as your king? Next time you're tempted to sin, I've been trying to do this this week. I think it's helped. Next time you're tempted to sin, remember who your king is and then listen to him. It's not yourself, it's Jesus. And so do what he says and live that out and see what happens in your life. How are you, how are you to treat King Jesus? Well, number one, obey him. Secondly, what does it look like to treat Jesus as king? Well, I think it means to trust him. Uh, when God allows something to come into your life, usually suffering or something like that, do you trust him and see what he brings into your life as a good gift that he's going to use to refine you and to strengthen your faith? Or do you use those times to doubt his goodness and his rule in your life and, and question if he's actually in control? Now, it doesn't mean that when those situations come that you should just smile and grin and bear and just pretend like everything's okay. But you can trust that your sovereign king knows what is best for you and will only allow that to happen if it's going to bring good for you and glory for him. I think um, sometimes we, we obey God, but we don't do it because he's king. We do it because we think if we obey him, he'll have to give us what we really want. And so when things don't go the way that we want, we go, well, that's unfair, God. I obeyed you. How could you let that happen to me? Well, again, that's not trusting him as king, isn't it? That's just manipulating him. What does it look like to trust Jesus as king? Well, it's to trust that he knows what is best for your life. And that he will only bring things into your life if they are for your good, if they are for your refinement, to make you more like his son. We have a king and we can trust him to rule our lives. And then finally, what does it look like to, to treat Jesus as king? I think it means to serve him. You saw that at the end of uh, uh, Psalm 2. To serve the king. Live for him and his kingdom rather than your own. Jesus isn't meant to be the thing to get you what you really want. He is the end goal. You don't serve him so you can get the thing you really want. He is the thing that you really want. He's the king that served you. He's the king that laid down his life for you. And so we can serve him as king because true freedom isn't found apart from him. True freedom will only come in service to, in trusting and obeying the true king. And so let me pray. Let me ask that God would do that in our lives. Father, we thank you for all of those great promises that you gave to your people over so many hundreds of years. 
the foretelling of this king that you would bring to bring about salvation, to bring about peace, to, to conquer our enemies of Satan, sin and death. Lord, we thank you in Jesus. We have the advent of that king, the coming of that king, King Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would not be kings of our own lives, but we would set him up as king and that we would obey him, that we would trust him and that we would serve him all the days of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus.